Umair, I have a, an important question for you this time of year. I know you uh, recently became a father, but not only did you become a father, you became a father of twins. So what I want to know is is what it's like first when you get the news that you're going to have twins, and then mm-hmm. what is it like to be a first-time father and, and your first experience having twins? Oh, man, it's... It's it's really wonderful when you hear the news first because you feel like you know you're gonna be the cool guy. Everyone is talking about their kids, and you're gonna say, "Hey, I have twins!" And everyone is like, "Wow, that guy has twins!" It's so exciting. But the world changes the day they're born, right? It it's the amount of work you have to do with twins is beyond imaginable. Um, it, you almost have to run run it like a production line, right? You have to be focused. Everything has to go through a schedule. That's the only way to survive, to feed them, to um, to change their diapers. Everything is double the cost, right? So definitely a wonderful feeling, but the amount of work is is insane, and you definitely need some management skills to survive. Is it like? Uh, do you have? Have you implemented some type of like DevOps pipeline where there's like an automatic <laughs> pipeline, and and kids can like deploy at at any time? They they can be uh, they can be crashing and then redeployed. Has any of that uh, background helped in your parenting situation? Yeah, absolutely. The feedback loop right helps. I <laughs> some of the. Di- my, my initial diaper changing skills were not the best, but naturally because of the speed of the pipe, right? You can go through it. That's right. You get so deployed, you, you redeploy. Get lot, you get redeployed, you learn a lot. So you learn a lot quicker, right? So by the by the fifth day, because it's actually the tenth day, you, yeah. you learn a lot. Right? Well, also, I feel like uh, children are, are just like, they they are by default the chaos monkeys, right? They're always like testing you in new age. You're like, I don't know. I don't know what will happen if uh, one kid is uh, vomiting and the other kid is crying. And you're just like, well, we'll just, you know, we'll see what happens. So they inject that into your into your life. So what I guess, you know, I am a parent of just one child, which I found to be a tremendous amount, especially uh, newborns and infants. So I was wondering, though, because if you're going to have twins, maybe it makes sense to have them like first, right? Because you therefore it's uh, the theory of uh, ignorance is bliss. Like you really don't know any other way. Right. The idea that yeah. if you're just having because I think once you had one child and you kind of live through it, the idea of doing it simultaneously seems totally impossible. So therefore, maybe if someone just gives you two and you don't know any better, that would be a better way to survive the experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think a lot of people tell me after year two, we are at 15th month now. So after year two, things get better, right? Twins uh-huh. play with each other, hopefully. And, you know, we get the, we get one, get done once, right? They go to school together, college together. I think, you know, maybe in the long run, this might be a better decision. But right now, <laughs> it seems a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, congratulations. Like all new parents, Thank uh, you. as they say, longest, shortest time. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, the worst job ever, but it's the greatest, f- most fulfilling experience you'll probably yeah. ever do. Right. So it's all these, all the cliches, as, the, as they say. So, well, listen, the reason I wanted to have you on the show is that you've done a bunch of stuff and we've known each other for, I don't know, several years, many years, maybe now. And I thought we could talk a little bit about your background because it's sort of interesting. You've done lots of different stuff. And then you know, we'll get into kind of what your new venture is because you've gotten involved in this whole Kubernetes and we're at KubeCon and security stuff. So there'll be some, some fun stuff to talk about. But let's go back. Let's go back and start at the beginning a little bit because I know your first uh, entree into software, as I remember, right, was actually working in, in retail software. Um, so, like, tell me about it. how did you get into retail software? Like, what did you actually do when you first got into technology? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think when I graduated from my undergrad, um, I always 
like to code a bit, but at the same time, I like marketing too, right? So by the time I had graduated, I had, you know, quite a few freelance projects going around and I started my own development company, like pretty much everyone does back <laughs> home, right? But I used to sell to a local market. I did everything. I made decent money, but, you know, it was a lot more work, right? So the hardest lesson that I learned was, you know, it's not about doing everything, right? It's about picking that one thing and doing it really well, right? So I used to do, you know, pretty much you could be a mom and pop shop. You could be a, a freelancer looking for a website. I would do everything for you, right? But I realized, you know, I couldn't really charge anything for you. So then when I moved to another company called, you know, a startup called Monthlex System, which has merged with another big company now successfully, um, they were focused on retail, right? So I knew the the founder uh, from my school days, he was one of our sponsors at an event. And and that's where I got into retail. They did the same stuff, but just for retail. And their expertise were so much better in that space that they were able to charge premium and they were able to solve problems better too, right? So I think that's how I got into retail. Um, and we sold some Microsoft Dynamics stuff. We had our own BI tools. So it, it was, a, again, a startup. And I was like, you know, the first marketing slash sales hire. Um, so it was pretty exciting back then. So who were who were your clients? In this case, you were like going to like like mom and pop shops and actually installing like point of sale terminals. Like what were you actually doing? Yeah, so I was. Uh, I think at that point we were just selling point of sale software, right? And there's backend softwares too, right? So if you were a bigger chain, so there was one retail chain that was over 500 stores, right? So the game changes not only about POS. You can sell them merchandise planning software. You can sell them BI planning software, right? Um, again, there's a lot of retail-specific software that you can sell beyond point of sale. But yes, point of sale was a start, but everyone has a point of sale, right? It's about, you know, replacing that can be a lot of painful. So most of the customers were with certain amount of, you know, shops. Like we had a customer, you know, who was based out of Middle East, pretty much in every country in the Middle East, and they had 60, 70 perfume stores, right? Um, so again, we were still focused on retail, but selling software for retail, like merchandise planning, um, point of sales terminals, uh, business intelligence for retail, you know, CRM systems for retail, um, and so on. Okay, so you're you're doing this and you're out there. Like, are you actually going to the customer sites and like doing like yeah, power, doing like a full PowerPoint pitch? Like, this is why you should use us and like demoing yeah. the software. Is this like is this your day to day at this point? Yeah, at this point, I, it was my day-to-day, -day, but I also oversold stuff. So as a startup, <laughs> we couldn't hire enough people. So when I oversold stuff, I actually went to implement it. And a customer would get shocked. Hey, dude, weren't you the sales guy? You're going to be our implementation guy? Um, but naturally, because I was from a technical background and, you know, there was no concept of pre-sales or marketing versus sales at that point. I was the one for first hire for all of it. But over time, they had a separate marketing guy. They had, you know, a couple of other sale guys. They had pre-sale guys. They had, you know, you know, solution consultants. They were separate. Um, but, you know, at that point, you know, I even over, I, I was marketing pre-sales and even implementing a project. I was literally sitting at stores with the store manager doing the first closing at time. That's right? awesome. No, it's, it's, it's a great way to uh, prevent, uh, I guess, uh, selling too far out in front of the skis that they say, like, if you ultimately are the one that has to come install it, then you better be careful what you sell. You better be, you better <laughs> make sure that like it actually does whatever it is that you just said it was. Cause they'll be, they'll really be looking at you and being like, Hey, you're the one that said it could do this, make it do this. And, and that's where I've learned a really important thing too, right? The reason I sold better, Microsoft, not that it was like, I, I know SAP, B1 and Oracle, everything was good, right? Microsoft was good too. 
but I think it was our expertise, right? So if I knew the field so well, I knew the product inside out, you know, the SAP guy or some other guy would come in and they would pitch. They, it would be the same guy who sold retail, who sold manufacturing, who sold everything. But I, I had so much experience, they were just impressed by the team, right? They thought they knew the domain. So I think it's it, it's it's going back to sales 101, right? Even though sales guy are perceived to be a guy who just sells stuff that doesn't exist, right? But um, but if a sales guy knows their product really well, it could be a comparative advantage because honestly, pretty much every field is a commodity business. Right? You look at monitoring or anything, they're like hundreds of vendors in pretty much every field, right? And product feature function-wise, some differentiation, some not, but at the end of the day, you know, uh, sale guys and sales approach matter too, no matter what we say. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think as you know, we've talked about, I think, you know, offline is that, you know, knowledge is power, knowledge is confidence, right? And then at the end of the day, you know, this idea that um, there's this sales guy that like, that the cliche is like, they drive like a sports car, they just like walk in and they like, just, you know, have like a, a really great speech and they, they convince someone to buy the software because of their force of personality. It's like, I mean, while that may happen and in truth, it's, it's, you know, people see through that pretty fast, right? It's like, you gotta, you know, when you get up there and at some point you have to answer questions about like, what does this stuff do? How is this stuff going to help me? Right. Why is it? So, so the salesperson that connects, right. The quote trusted consultant, as we like to say, is mm -hmm. usually the guy that's going to win the deal versus the, you know, the glad handing, um, if you will, uh, used car salesman kind of guys like that. I don't know. Those, those people don't tend to succeed um, as much as I think maybe we, we like to think that they succeed sometimes. Mm -hmm. so. All right. So you're doing this and you're obviously doing pretty well. But when did you decide? How did you decide to make a move? Right. Because at some point you end up coming over here to the United States and, uh, you know, kind of getting into enterprise software. How, how did all this come about? How did this this happen? Yeah, so I think I think it was uh, I really wanted to move to the U.S. for a bit, at least work there. Initially, the plan was not to move permanently, of course, but but naturally it it happened, uh, and it it almost felt like the playing league in the U.S. is a lot bigger, right? So it's like you know, um, so I think I needed that experience, and that's why I moved here. I did an MBA here. I did a course in solutions marketing, and that's where I met C the CA guys, right? A couple of guys said, hey, we're trying to put together this workload automation tool and this process automation tool, uh -huh. and we, I think we need a solution marketer, right? That term was really hard there. Right. And that started as a project with, I don't know if you remember, Jim Anderson and Tanvirsen. Yeah, um, that's course. how I started yeah. in product management. I did some comparative analysis. And did you start? I can't remember now. Like, were you still getting your MBA? Were you like an intern or a contractor? Like, how did you start? Like, how did you even like find your way into CA at the time? So, so I think they, they came as a as a presenter at CA uh, at our school, and then um, they had a couple of projects. But I did an accelerated one year MBA, and uh -huh. typically uh, they were thinking about internships, right? So, but legally they couldn't they had to pay me because I had graduated, right? It was an accelerated MBA. There's no summer, so you completed one year, right? I wanted to do it because I wanted to get back in the workforce, right? Mm -hmm. Other than rather than spend two years, right? So it was a win-win. Um, so they, they said, you know, we'll hire you as a contractor. We pay you a minimum amount, which was pretty decent, right? Um, for like a paid internship kind of things. I was called a contractor was pretty much an internship, right? right? For the first few months. And then, you know, Jim liked me and he got me on, you know, full time and then, um, I, I got to work in product management a bit, you know, look at comparative analysis. I did, you know, solution pricing, packaging. I do 
I talked to quite a few guys in big banks, so I think that was really exciting. Uh-huh. You know, talking to the small guys, you know, you know, yeah, so in, let's in a go different back, country, right? Yeah, it gives people some more details. I think you uh, you came into CA and uh, you broadly joined the team doing product marketing, doing uh, workload automation, which I guess was kind of like two things. It was like the mainframe side, right? And then there was like a distributed side, as I remember. And and that was, yeah. uh, I think those, you know, I think of like looking back on that time now, as I remember, right, they were pretty legacy products like at least the mainframe side was reminded me of pretty legacy so what how did you when you took that job like and they sort of like hey because it's always like you know typically people come to you like hey we just need better marketing right that's the problem like i've heard that many times i'm sure you have too like how did you approach it like how did you figure out like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna try to make um workload automation sexy if you will (laughs) so i'll I'll be blunt you're honest i'll tell you a secret the first time i came to see, I actually had to Google the term workload automation. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know it was a job schedule we call a workload automation, right? So I didn't know people made that much money off a job schedule. (laughs) (laughs) It was insane, right? Again, again, a very different experience for me. Um, So I think when I joined the group, I I still remember I started with packaging more and then helping you with the launch. Uh-huh. For a product, but I think one of the products was still new, right? D series and ESP, yep. pretty powerful products, right? And C is a big player in that market, so I get a chance to talk to a few banks, document their use cases. So it was pretty exciting for me, like talking to Fortune 500 companies, telling their story. And, and I think I, I remember the first few months I worked on the product management side, and I still quote you at times, right? You, uh, you, you told me on the phone that you know let you know if you if I ever wanted to cross over to the dark side. <laughs> Right? Yes, yes. I think I, we started the re- recruiting early. Right? It's like, hey, why don't you come yeah. over on this side? Yes. <laughs> I think that's that's when I joined you guys. And uh, it was pretty interesting, right? Initially, we just had, I, I think initially we had the distributed engine only under you when I worked for you there at CA. Um, so I, I think it's all about making partnership. I still remember X Matters had done an integration with us. And that now, you know, there's, there's pager duties. There's, you know, there's so many more players that's gone more than, you know, these alert management tools. But if you remember, X Matters had a selling point that it, 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 it provided you a mechanism of having a mobile interface. Mobile was so hot right now mm-hmm. at that point. In time, yeah. right? um, so I, it, it was less about, you know, alert aggregation, correlation. It was more about getting the mobile interface. I think that partnering with them, with a new release, you know, doing, and then cloud came in, right? You could schedule workloads in the cloud too. I think those two things made workloads sexy again, Kind of, right? In a partnership with them, helped them a bit. I still remember that was the first inside sales teams at CA that ran X Matters to, right? So that was pretty cool. We got 20, 30, 40 opportunities. That was pretty good. And in an enterprise account, that's pretty good, right? Yeah. That was a very good campaign. Um, and, and, and I know at that point that was just an experiment and maybe you guys thought, Hey, we'll give it to Merit and he can try it out. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You did. You were always, uh, and you probably still are. You were always the guy that was just like willing to try anything. So like when in doubt, I was like, I don't know, man, let's, let's see if Umer wants to try it. So, all right. So you're doing workload automation and then, um, you know, and again, to your point, right, it's like workload automation, also known as job scheduling, also known as like, and because a lot of people would say like, what is it that just cron jobs? But what a lot of people don't realize is that like most big banks and uh, financial institutions, like behind the scenes, 
like workload automation is like what makes make sure that like when uh when a deposit goes in overnight some type of workload automation is going to process that transaction uh, at night and then make sure your money gets in the bank so it is one of these things that's like super important that like nobody really knows about or like i would say the mainstream world doesn't know about it but we were doing that for a while and then i know from that right you then started to, to make your way over into the monitoring uh set yeah. of products at ca and then you even kind of got into this whole ai AI ops world. So why don't you tell us like, how did you get into monitoring? And then maybe you're the person that can properly explain AI ops to us all <laughs> so that we can all correctly explain it to our friends and family. Absolutely. So I think monitoring was a transition. Um, you know, if you remember Bill, Bill uh, at that point, CA did done the NIMSART acquisition. It, it was doing really good. And then solo winds came in the picture, right? So if you remember they so right now what, you know, Dare Dogs and Coles are doing to SAS at that point, Solo did to freemium offerings, right? Sign up trial, right? Yeah, trial. So that's where we yep. mm -hmm. exactly right. So we had uh, unified infrastructure management snap or NIMSoft snap, right? At that point, it was called. Mm -hmm. uh, we launched that pretty successful. Uh, we had ten thousand downloads in three months. Um, considering we were selling to a commodity market with already tons of similar tools like SpiceWorks, Nagio, SoloWinds, already in there, that was a big achievement. I think that's where. You know, I kind of grew at CA as well. So it was a great experience taking the freemium offering and at a company where there was no concept of a free product, right? Yeah. Of a downloadable thing, right? So it was pretty exciting and challenging at the same time. Working with, you know, even Mike G directly to record his interview once was pretty thrilling. Right. Um, well, yeah, because people uh, got to go back in time. Like this is like a huge challenge because all the people you just mentioned, like CA is a very traditional enterprise software yeah. vendor. And, you know, you mentioned them all, like I think, SolarWinds is obviously, you know, a download try-by model, inside sales selling, and then Datadog was emerging at this time, and then Nagius has been there. So, I mean, that was pretty – I imagine you had quite a bit of meetings trying to explain to the CA world of, like, no. Like, when people are saying, well, well, we'll just have the legal person send the contract over, it's like, no, it can't be like that. They have to just click download, and it has to be really easy to buy. Well, was that a lot of meetings? Was that harder than it sounds, or was, uh, was CA really yeah. open to it? Yeah, I, I think it was harder initially, but I think once you tell people, I, I've always learned, right? When you tell people that we can make a difference, right? Like people at CA want to work, uh, like at, at any company, people want to grow, right? It's not that, you know, they don't want to grow or they're, so if you talk to their, that aspect, hey, this is something unique we're doing. This is something has a lot of potential. We can make a difference. Things change. But of course, there was a lot of back and forth between legal and everything, you know, running a campaign, even writing things like free for up to 30 devices, right? Even that was, you know, pretty, that pretty was, controversial, that itself, right? Yeah. Pretty controversial, right? So can we write that? Where can we use it? Where can't we use it? But, you know, uh, but naturally, you know, it's, it's, it's big, I guess with big companies like CA, if you're a small startup, you can get away with, you know, small legal things here and there, but for big companies, people know you have the money. So people are willing to sue you, right? <laughs> so I guess like not defending C in that sense, but you know, it makes sense from their side to their legal team too, because they know people will come out after. Maybe yeah, a startup can say it. concerns, right? I mean, I think yeah. that's, that's what yeah. all large companies have to face, right? Is the deep pockets yeah. draw a lot of people out. So, so you, you launch, uh, I can't remember. So it's Nimsoft. What was it called? Nimsoft snap or what was it? What Nimsoft was it monitor snap. It okay. was called, but now it's, it, it's now UIM snap. Now, now it is, SaaS there, so we don't have a premium offering anymore at CA. Okay. Um, but now SaaS has changed everything, right? So again, right. how market has evolved. So you're doing that for a while. And then yeah. at some point, I know CA does a couple things, right? They, they 
make some acquisitions to get into DevOps, right? And then there's this whole move to get into like, you know, AI ops. So I know you were part of that. So how did you get into AI? First, what is AI ops as you define so, it? And then, and then two, <laughs> how, how did you get involved in it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a very natural transition, right? So to me, if I were to define AI ops, right, it, it's a two-step process, right? Um, it, it's the use of big data technologies, right? Aggregating data from multiple sources, right? And using... I won't use the term AI, I'll use machine learning to be simple, right? Mm -hmm. I know machine learning is a form of AI, but but using machine learning-based algorithms and statistical algorithms maybe to, to get insights, right? So I think it's it's basically the merging of two worlds, big data and machine learning together, right? Um, in, instead of, you know, you you having an infrastructure monitoring software, an application monitoring software, five network monitoring softwares, you know, you have this central place where you aggregate all their data, right? And then you use algorithms to get to insights, right? Instead of getting these reactive alerts, mm -hmm. you get, you know, basically it shortens your time to insight, right? So that's what I, that's how I would explain it. Right. And um, I think there's, it's worth talking about because like AI ops has gone through this like weird branding life cycle. It, I, I believe it originally came out as a algorithmic IT operation. So it's kind of what you're pointing. It's like applying algorithms to lots of different monitoring data to make sense of it. But then I think the term got co-opted, uh, I guess, by Gardner. I guess we can blame Gardner for this because the yeah, they, they rebranded it as uh, artificial intelligence for IT yeah. operations. Uh, but it's really the same thing. And behind the scenes, I think what you said before, it's like, really, maybe we should just call it machine learning for operations, right? Because it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's essentially like looking at a lot of different data, applying machine learning algorithms and, and determining signal from noise, right? That's like, to me, that's the simplest way I think of it. Yeah, but but I think people tend to ignore the the big data element of it, right? The the storing on and aggregating that data itself. Like I see, it took us you know a year just to solve that problem, aggregating all that data data into a single elastic you know data store mm -hmm. uh, as well. So uh, because you, it, I guess you can only do a few things with machine learning if you only had one silo data, right? You really need that pill full pictures across applications, networks, infrastructure, and even pulling in business data too, right? Imagine you can correlate, you know, a spike in sales volume with, you know, a, a CPU spike, right? I think that would be pretty cool, right? Yeah. You're, you're about to run a flash sale. All of a sudden, your marketing team runs a flash sale and your infrastructure team is not ready for it, right? <laughs> but if somehow, if somehow, you know, they were, they, they knew about it. And I guess the next thing about AI ops is like AI ops can truly drive automation. It could, it could make automation intelligence too, right? And I know a lot of people merge process automation and or robotic process automation as well with AI ops. But I think AI ops is like the brain behind it, right? I feel mm -hmm. like it's going to make process automation more intelligent too. So, so do like, you see, it, this comes up, cause I, I see this conversation happen a lot, right? There's, monitoring traditional monitoring is a, at least i know and love and then um there's the rise of what people call observability right which i there's i don't know i think there's a passionate debate inside the the monitoring let's call it the monitoring cohort about the the potential differences or the similarities between the two and then finally you get to the point that there's ai ops so let's walk through like an example just because i think it'd be helpful for everyone it's like if i'm a just a large fortune 500 company and i've probably been doing some level of monitoring from you know for, throughout my existence like what what would you tell them to do would they replace their monitoring tools and just use ai ops tools or would they integrate with an ai ops tool like how how do you see it happening in the real world 
I think it's uh, it's not that you can turn off your monitoring tools, right? Because I don't think AI ops is at that level yet. And plus, you need to train your algorithms. It takes time. So I think monitoring would be there for a while. Uh, so you basically integrate with your monitoring tools, right? And use over time, switch over to that AI ops tool. But I think in, in a few years, the monitoring tools would pretty much be uh, dumb collectors, right? Pretty much a collector for infra, infra data, network data, app data. But, you know, because people are really tired of having multiple consoles, right? <laughs> you know, you know, this, it never gets old. The console of consoles, yeah. that's, it's always and, the same problem. Exactly. And I remember when we briefed Forrester too, when they were saying, so at the end of the day, you guys are automating root cause, right? And he laughed for a bit. I said, I said, why? And he, he said, I'm, I'm not laughing because you guys can do it. You guys can certainly do it. But I'm laughing because everyone, like, it, it's a different technology every year. But everyone has been trying to do the same thing, solve problems faster, right? Yeah. Why is it AI different, right? But I think the key is, you know, getting that central data lake, having that topology engine too um, in there and really finding the root cause faster, right? It's not yeah. about alert correlations. I, I think alert correlation is useful, but it's, it's, it's like an interim step, right? If, the, if an AI tool can tell me with, I don't know, 80% accuracy that this system is at fault, not these five application servers, I think that's that's the real value, not you know cutting down the alerts for me. Yeah, no, I to- I totally agree, and I think that's you know I I think the reason you know guys like Forrester or Gardner, I mean, because they see so many of these pitches, it's it's really to flip it around. It's like the problem just isn't solved, right? Because every yeah. year, what happens is uh, IT adopts some new technology, it introduces new data, new paradigms, new topologies into the market. So therefore, you know, trying to analyze all this data that gets harder and harder. So to your point, so maybe I. I always think that, you know, if we just simplify and say, you're always going to need some system to feed as much data as you can into it. And then today we would say it's mostly machine learning, right? They're going to do some type of machine learning algorithm. And if you train them long enough in your environment, it should really help you, right? But it does. It's a commitment, right? It takes a long time, I think, for a company to, to start seeing a lot of value. I don't, you know, when you start ripping in and out tools, um, or, or like if people just, you know, just try to like download and try lots of different things, it's like, well, it's probably not going to be very successful, right? Cause it has to become some kind of systematic approach to it. So, uh, well, who do you think like right now? So like who are the major player in AOPS? Cause it is kind of an up and coming thing. So obviously there's your old product line, right? It's CA. It's still, yeah. still doing well, I'm sure. Yeah. I think monitoring is evolving, right? So the way I define it, you know, there are some vendors who were, you know, monitoring vendors, right? So network, network infrastructure, application vendors. So A, they're trying to add what's missing, right? So let's say New Relic is adding infrastructure. CA always had three, they're trying to link it, right? And that's kind of an advantage for CA. Um, I know they were my employers, but you know I still think they are in a unique position because they already have people using all three products, right? So that's a big head start. Um, and then there are these MOOC softs of the world or big pandas who say, bring your own monitoring tool, we'll just connect them together, right? Um, I think they have a unique opportunity too. If you have a lot of heterogeneous tool, like you have one new relic, one CA, one SEV1, like, or, or a lot more, right? Or solo wins. But at the same time, um, you know, it's a lot harder for them because they don't have those new accounts, right? So maybe they'll they'll sell to those, you know, born in the cloud companies first, but you know, maybe a bit here and there depending on the relationships. But if one vendor has a strong relationship in their account, it'll be very tough to sell, be it you know, CA, IBM, or anyone, right? Um, so I think there's these two layers: the monitoring vendors trying to become AI ops, and then you know, these vendors were saying, bring your own monitoring, right? And we'll put the layer on top of it. But I think 
what's unique about again CA is that a they have people using three products and plus they have an open API you can connect third party tools too right so if you have UIM and APM and the network is not spectrum let's say you wanted to connect solo and you could right right uh, but again everyone realizes the, the big game is is in the analytic piece, right? The, yeah. the dumb collectors are going to die out eventually. Right? <laughs> At the end Not of the day, right? There, Monitoring right? is the commodity. It's about taking all this data and making exactly. it more easy and actionable. So, so good. All and, right. So, and, mm-hmm. yeah. Another example is that you know, if you ask the IT guy, too, do you really want to stare the screen every day and just see green and red lights? Right. <laughs> I think it really helps them too. They're tired of. You know, doing those things too. Everyone, you know, in a DevOps world, you want to be part of release teams. You want to help release code faster, beat builds, dynamic infrastructures. You don't want to spend an entire day just staring at a screen. You know, you know, check, chasing every red alert or orange alert, right? So I think that's another key thing. Yeah, this is something you know. I know we both know this that you know the real UI for monitoring tools is, is the alerting system, whether it's PagerDuty or X Matters or the built-in one. It's because uh, I know it's so often people get uh, really hung up with like, what does the UI look like, and you know the console and the dashboards, and then there's always some knock where they're like just projecting the the console at the top, but but really no one wants to look at it. You know what I mean? Like a, at a real large company, everybody's busy. And the only time, the, the reason they're going to be looking at it is their phones, right? If something happens, then they're going to go jump into it. But they don't, they don't want this. Like if they're spending a lot of time in your console, you've probably done something wrong. Ideally, they, the alert tells them almost everything they need to know. And then they can go quickly take action. Um, but I don't know. I know as monitoring vendors, and I'm guilty of this too, it's uh, there's always like lots of dashboards, right? You're always showing them how they can make lots of dashboards, uh, <laughs> even though they really don't want to look at any of the dashboards. Uh, so, all right. So you were doing AI ops and you're working at CA and you're being successful. I know all that for sure. But I also know, uh, we'll call it the nighttime. Before, before children, I know you spent... Uh, a lot of time kind of networking, a lot in the New York uh, City, the broad New York City uh, startup scene. So uh, I think a lot of people listening to this have obviously are familiar with Silicon Valley and maybe even some people familiar with Austin and stuff. But New York's tech scene seems to be like its own little thing. So how did you get involved in the New York tech scene? And like, how would you describe it to like maybe people that live in other parts, other tech hubs, but haven't spent that much time in and around New York City? Um, I, I think... Uh... Uh, like I lived in Houston for a bit too, right? So I kind of missed the New York tech, tech hub in a bit. But I think New York is definitely a lot smaller, right? Um, but uh, then, then San Francisco, I've spent a lot of time recently on that side too, right? Definitely the size is a lot smaller. But but I do feel like what New York has an advantage is like all the fortunate companies, like the traditional ones, the banks and the fintechs are here, right? Now Amazon is opening an office here too. So I think... Like I have attended a few events in San Francisco too. Like there are a lot of people there, but I think there's a lot of focus quality on the New York side, right? So if you were to build a startup, people who you would sell to are in this area anyway, right? Like even in my existing role, most of the people we talk to are on the East Coast, at least right now, mm-hmm. right? Uh, pretty much every bank, every financial company, all the big pocket guys or retail companies or fashion companies, yeah, you know, a lot of them are on the East Coast. So I think that's what really makes it really unique that you go to the events, you not only find people who are just looking to network. So at, at these startup events, there are three types of guys to be, right? <laughs> One person is is a startup, actual startup guy, right? Uh, who's doing, trying to really hustle and trying to find things for his startup. The other guy is a wannabe, you know, startup guy. He has no idea, but he's just there to learn stuff. 
probably like me, people like me, right? <laughs> um, I would love to move to the next stage. And the third person is, you know, there's someone there who is just trying to sell services, a legal person or, you know, right. a marketing guy, right? But if you go to a New York tech startup scene, you'll find the fourth person who actually works in IT department of a big company or a development of a big company. I think that's what's something really unique about New York and you get that sort of interaction. And, um, and uh, so I learned a lot here and then, then I, like I'll give a plug for the workbench guys too. They're an enterprise VC company and they're focused on v- enterprise, right? They have great connections within you know, the New York tech scene. Um, they know pretty much everyone um, in the enterprise business, right? Both from a financial standpoint, retail companies, they've opened doors for us too. And they understand their pain points a lot better, right? So they made that as a comparative edge. They understood they could never potentially compete in the broader startup area, but if they focus on enterprise and they use their local connection, it's a big advantage, right? So um, I think that's what's unique about New York for sure, right? That you get that you know, end user community feel too, and people are very open to meeting you. Yeah, well, it's interesting that the kind of the contrast you paint because um, I never really necessarily thought about it that way. But in New York, great, you're like you really are living with all your customers. So if you're an enterprise uh, based uh, startup or just solving enterprise problems, I mean, your customer base is is for the most part all over New York City. Every major industry is almost represented in some way in New York. Uh, whereas when you go to San Francisco, right, it can feel very, when you walk around, it, it's it's sort of like an echo chamber of just consumer startups, right? It's like, well, Twitter's, there's the Twitter building, and then everyone's trying Twitter or Facebook, right? Because there's so much consumer stuff. So it's probably a good way to think of it. Like if you really wanted, you had a good enterprise idea, maybe hooking up with your friends at Workbench or, you know, if you will, making your home base New York is going to give you like instant access to continuous customer feedback and maybe, if you really are trying to do the next great consumer startup, I mean, that can probably happen anywhere, but it's, it's certainly seems more likely to happen on the West coast just based on, you know, previous history. Um, so, okay. So you're talking to all these different guys and, you know, I think, you know, at some point you decide that you're, you're going to maybe leave CA. How did you kind of, uh, decide, you know, what was your next opportunity going to be like? Cause I know you probably want to start your own company. And then of course there's like joining a startup and all the craziness that comes with that. So how did you go through that decision process? Um, I think I'll be perfectly honest. It didn't happen. Like I wasn't actively looking for a switchover, right? Mm-hmm. AIOps is a pretty hard field, right? right. So uh, it's not I was. It's not that I was working job scheduling, right? Um, so, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you had already team. diversified your career into a good area. Yeah. Uh huh. Right. So and great team, you know, great management, great boss. Um, so um, I, I think what what triggered me was the opportunity. The team at Cytel reached out. So Neil James, one of the founders, um, and when I started the interview process. I like their idea and concept, although this was a very different feel for me, security, right? Uh, but at the same time, I really like the team. And during my interview process, I really like the three founders, right? They're, they're not only their backgrounds, like, you know, they've com- worked at companies like Amazon, Google, Okta, Splunk, PagerDuty, um, you know, pretty much the right skill set. But they also have, they also had families, kids, you know, not not 20-year-olds, you know, just starting out of college. So I think the way they understand and respect your own values, right? You have kids, you have time. Of course, everyone works hard here, right? But I think that was a big thing for me too. But again, I backed the team and it was so early stage, uh, pre-revenue. Um, so I, I, it was a big bet, but I think I'm that betting on the team, right? All right. So, well, let's talk about like what what's the name of the company and why don't you give us your 
your best uh, two minute description of like what it actually does now. <laughs> so I think if you look at, you know, if I were to explain it really quickly, Sightail, the company I work for, Sightail.io. So we'll have a full fledged website eventually as well. So we are basically, um, you know, identity management for services, right? In a cloud native world or in an enterprise, right? So what I mean by service, not user, in, in today's world, pretty much, you know, we live in a work of cloud services, containers, Kubernetes, you know, different application services need to communicate with each other, right? And they're a cross-platform, right? If you look at a typical enterprise, they don't have just AWS or Kubernetes or, you know, or, or Amazon or traditional, or Azure, sorry, and traditional stuff, right? They have a mix of multiple clouds. They have a mix of multiple middleware like Kubernetes. They have a mix of different APIs, internal, external, they talk to. And everyone has their own identity management mechanism, right? When software services are communicating, that network and user authentication doesn't really help you a lot, right? The concept of zero trust as well, um, that you have to look within your firewall, not externally, right? Um, so what Cytel does is they really provide you a mechanism of managing your, your services, services identities really easily and really securely, right? If, if I were to use a tagline, it will be identity management, um, for cloud native services, right? Yeah, so we should uh, unpack that a little bit because I think I, you know, I've certainly spent maybe too much time in like traditional identity management, but right, identity management is, as I think a lot of enterprises define it, it's it's really the ability to uh, give users the access to the systems they need to do their jobs, right? And then in part of that then is also authorization, is like making sure they don't have unnecessary access, right? So if I'm just an employee and I'm a, a brand new, there's probably no reasons I need to have access to accounts payable. And if I do need to have it, that maybe requires like a little extra auditing, a little bit extra um, informed consent, if you will, about giving that access. So that problem's been around for a long time. And I think what you're kind of pointing out is is we've kind of entered the world of the cloud and microservices. And, you know, now we have, you know, if you want to think of these as this virtual people, right? We have all these different services, essentially trying to talk to all these other services. And just like classic identity management, like when it gets so big, you need to put a whole product involved. And I think when I talk about identity management, sometimes I tell people, it's like, well, it was easy when there was just a mainframe and it was just like one account. It was just, you know, you just manage that one account. And then maybe with Windows, that was just, well, that's just two accounts. But then when you get like 50 different applications, it's pretty complicated. And so what I think you're pointing out is, you know, all indications are, you know, the amount of services and, if you will, the decentralized nature of machine to machine communication, it's just going to grow exponentially, right? We're going to have hundreds exactly, or right. thousands of different services talking. So it sounds like you guys are going to try to try to manage all of that for us. Is that, you know, is that a good way to think of it? Yeah, absolutely. Again, we, at this point, we are focused on the base layer, right? Issuing identity and testing that identity, right? I think those are the key things. We could build a lot more stuff, but that's a basic problem we are trying to solve. Okay. Um, at this point. So you can give identity to a service irrespective of the platform, right? And if you look at, you know, one of our open source projects, uh, Spiffy, which is a, a, a framework more of a specification for you to give IDs um, to identities irrespective to services to irrespective of the platform. So you can issue a, an identity, which we call a Spiffy ID to a service, uh, be it running on Amazon, Azure, or anything else, right? So right. that's more of a framework, and that's that's taken. And we are not the only contributors to it, right? People like you know people from Square, people from Netflix, from Google. You know, it's 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 a similar framework used by a lot of these companies, right? right. Um, and on top of that, there's a, uh, a Spire is 
is another open source project that we contribute a lot to. It's more of a runtime engine that that you know the different services or workloads can use to really get their IDs, you know, attest his IDs and so on, right? It's all about you know knowing, you know, um, making sure that you know services are communicating to each other, which are supposed to, right? Mm -hmm. And they, the best thing is they don't even need to know, uh, you know, keep these information in a secret store or anything, right? It's all done at runtime, right? right. Dynamically. Um, so let's, and then see, let's maybe help everyone. So SPIFI is, it stands for uh, Secure Production Identity Framework for Everyone. I believe that's the full exactly. name. So, and <laughs> it is, uh, it's a project, right? It's it's actually part, it's an open source uh and I think it's an incubator project in the CNCF. Is that the current state of it? Is that right? So right now it's at sandbox stage. Sandbox. Uh, okay, so that's right. That's below so, incubator. I got you. Yeah. Go so you need a certain amount of product in production we have, uh, references. So we are hoping that in the next few months we'll definitely upgrade to incubate pretty soon. There's been lots of interest around Spiffy. A lot of people have been reaching out to us who want to implement it either to Spire or to a paid version. Mm -hmm. So we've well, been having a like, lot who, of conversations. Who is the customer? Describe like the customer that you, that is going to, you know, that you want to work with. That's sort of like, huh, I need to figure this out. Like what does their current environment look like? And like, what's drawing them to like maybe participate in the Spiffy product or even like, you know, hook up with you guys at Skytail. So, so I think it's pretty much like I described three things, right? If you're going to multi-cloud, right? If you have different middlewares, right, Kubernetes and non-Kubernetes and VMware and so on, because there's some sort of heterogeneity even in middleware too. Even if you're not going to the cloud, everyone's moving to the cloud, right. by the way. And the third thing is even API management is a use case, right? If you have different APIs interacting with each other, right? Um, you can probably use an API gateway, but imagine you, you can't do that for multi-cloud. You can't do it for, you know, middleware. They all have their own mechanisms in place, right? So I think the... So the more heterogeneous your environment or the more you're planning to go to multiple clouds, multiple middleways, right? That's the reality. People have different development teams. Everyone has their own stack. I think that's where we fit, right? And, and I think the key problem we're trying to solve is if you look at the traditional enterprise too, they have, you know, traditional Kubro stuff too, right? They don't want to displace their um, traditional identity management, access management systems, right? So I think that's where SiteHill comes in as well. We're working on a translation layer you know, that kind of bridges the gap between the spiffy world and the traditional world too, right? So we act, we, we act as an identity translation layer between your legacy systems and your new systems too, right? So if you're moving to the cloud, you don't, you don't have to change your existing, you know, access identity management mechanisms, right? You can use the same thing. Got it. Uh, we will just write a transitional layer in between that. So I think that's another interesting capability we are working on. Yeah. Uh, as well. Well, what is you should tell everyone like what what is what is a Skytail, right? This has like some some actual meaning, doesn't it? The actual name of your company. Yeah, I think uh, um, I didn't check with the founders by the name there, but Skytail. I don't know if you, as a child, played the game too. But in the old, I, I guess in the ancient world during wars, you know, um, different. I guess uh, uh, like people wanted to like Spartans and the Greeks used it the most, right? So they they wanted to communicate their battle strategies, right? So Sightail used to be like a leather strip on a wood and you could, you know, it just had letters on it. You can Google and see a picture of it, right? Mm -hmm. I think kids play a game as well. So you kind of, you know, kind of encrypt the, the message in there by, you know, moving those keywords around the leather strip, uh, the leather cloth on top of a strip. And then the other person knows how to, you know, put it together and see that word. So I think kids play games with Sightail too. I might have played at some birthday party too right. as a child. 
I don't remember, but you know, that was a pretty cool name, right? Again, Cytel, you know, a physical Cytel makes, you know, ensures that, you know, your communications are pretty secure, secure, right? Mm -hmm. And it's critical data. You're, you're in a war, right? You can't let the enemy know your strategy, right? <laughs> right. So I, I'm guessing that's where it came from, but pretty exciting name too, right? So. Yeah, no, it's a cool name. I mean, I think it's a good metaphor for the company, right? Because that's really what it comes down yeah. to is you want to be able to like, send this data wherever, but only the right person, right? Only the person exactly. with the, the cipher, the sky tail actually knows how to decode it. So, so that's pretty good. So, so it sounds like, you know, obviously it's a, it's a huge growing space. You know, you're getting involved in Kubernetes and CNCF and all of that stuff. So, so you're, but you're, you're really kind of like, are you the first marketing person? Like what, what is your job? Let's talk about like, so you show up here and it's, you kind of go from CA, which is thousands of employees. I can't even remember how many. And then now you're down to like tens of maybe single digits, tens of employees, like how are you approaching this job? Like, what are you trying to accomplish say in like the next year? Cause it's a pretty big challenge. <laughs> no, I think it's definitely a lot more exciting. My excitement has doubled. I'll be honest that when, when I first joined, naturally there was a lot of hesitation. A lot of people said, you know, why are you making jump? It's too risky and blah, blah, blah. But I think the excitement comes with, you know, the, uh, and, and actually this space is a bit new to me as well. I'm learning a lot, but at the same time, I feel like I bring a fresh perspective, right? So I, every week I'm learning so much more, both in the domain side and about the startup world too, right? I think my next goal is to really help Cytel refine their value prop, um, you know, help achieve that product market fit and, you know, build the growth engine on top of it too. I'm employing number 22, right? So we had 24 in total, I think. I lose the count. I think we're adding people all the time. Um, but again, it's a great team to work with. Some of the smartest people I've worked with um, you know, in my life so far. Um, and they're solving a real need. Like I've like in the last month or so, I can't take names, but I've, I've, I've met pretty much everyone in, you know, in maybe, maybe five or six out of the top 10 banks in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty amazing. We are just a startup, right? So the idea has to have merit. There's a real problem people are trying to solve as they move to this multi-cloud world, multi-middleware, multi-API world, uh, heterogeneous word, right? Um, the, the security is a front and center, right? These days. So th this makes sense to them, right? And there are a lot of DevOps use cases too. Imagine you just write, you know, uh, you know, implementing us would be like a couple of lines of code for the developer too, instead of, you know, writing multiple lines of codes and learning multiple authentication authorization systems too, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I think meeting, getting that exposure is is pretty overwhelming too, but now I'm trying to focus on, you know, focusing on the exact value prop, what personas we should target, you know, tell the story to the world. Naturally, we're refining as well as we talk to more and more people, right? We're still at a pretty early stage, but um, definitely a lot like, more work. I was gonna say, it sounds like I can I can sense the energy, right? I think this is yeah. what all uh, anyone that works a startup, right? Is sort of like you know you you've seen it with like real customers, you're having like good customer interaction that always gives you like real validation, right? Because then uh, it's tough sometimes when you, <laughs> unfortunately, I've been at some other startups when you go and they're like, no, we don't, we don't really want that, right? You kind of feel it, it can be pretty demoralizing. So it sounds like you guys are doing it right. But we should talk a little bit about, you know, because Spiffy, and I know you were at KubeCon last week and like love to get your take. It's like, you know, one of the major takeaways, so this is KubeCon out in Seattle, right? The US one, it was that, uh, at least my takeaway, and I know it's something we talked on uh, the Software Defined uh, most recent software defined talk episode, we kind of recapped a lot of the QCOM announcements. It's just the complexity of so many different projects 
is starting to like it really that was something that kind of really struck me right as I, as you even mentioned it was sort of like the 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 if you will the released products then there's the incubator and then you know when you get to the the sandbox level you know all of the initiatives like none of them are necessarily bad right they all you know they all come from some place of solving some type of problem like how does an enterprise if you will absorb and like take advantage of cloud native technologies but i think on your side i'd like to get your take around just there are so many i think there are like 20 or 30 different you know projects in different states like uh, what was your take on kubecon and then how do you kind of decide like how do you break out of the noise for someone like yourselves who are so closely associated with one one specific project yeah I think, um, first of all, it was my first time in KubeCon, right? So I wasn't expecting it to be that big. I'll be pretty honest, right? Because it was 8,000 8, people there? Yeah, 8,000 people. And I was live in the keynote. It was pretty, like, it was packed. Like, it wasn't like people who signed up didn't show up. It was, like, packed. <laughs> of course, you can't compare it with the reinvent, which is insane, more like a fish market these days, right? Right. Uh, 70,000 people, I heard. So, again, it was pretty big, pretty decent crowd. Everyone was very engaging, and they showed some great stats about growth, right? I'm a big soccer fan, not a Man U fan, but they gave an, I'm a more of a Liverpool fan, but uh-huh. they gave an example, right? Manchester United is one of the biggest soccer clubs, right? Yeah. I hate to say it, but that's true. And they get, Kubernetes gets more traffic than them. That's insane, yeah. right? So there's a lot of, definitely a lot of interest. And the other thing fascinating was they shared so many projects, right? It's kind of these Lego blocks. It's kind of, guys, okay, we have Kubernetes. We, are, we need a way to monitor it we need a manner to trace it i liked how they explained the roadmap right um and then hey we need a service mesh to manage it right and they're all these complex pro- not complex in that sense but powerful products right uh, it's a lot of opportunities for startups like us too right so i think it's very difficult um to definitely get attention but at the same time it depends on the problem you're solving right so but cncf provides a great mechanism that people to explore different things right so I think people go there to see, hey, we're moving to a cloud world. What are the different components? And if you're there, even at a sandbox stage, people call you. Like we get you know, a lot of inquiries from CNCF. People are viewed as you know, uh, spiffy or spire there, and they call us for some help, for some more details, or looking into a more commercial offering and, and so on. So I think it's a great, even though there's so many products there, but it's a good way for people to find you too, right? Um, and I tell people, like we were just discussing, how do we define spiffy, right? To us, Spiffy is going to be the is potentially the glue that ties everything together, right? Because we are the I, Spiffy is more of a specification and ID for each service, right? Mm-hmm. So I think Spiffy could be the glue that ties everything together, right? Um, even some of the monitoring vendors are interested in Spiffy because Spiffy is a way of giving process level IDs or kernel level IDs too, right? So typically people are stuck at an application level. It's very difficult to trace them, right? Imagine everything had in an ideal world, everything had a Spiffy ID. All you have to do is just literally, you know, pull the string of spiffy IDs and you can get to the root cause. So, uh, again, lots of use cases. And I think in a cloud native world, that's where spiffy stands out too, right? It's very basic. It's very basic at an IT level. And security is something that's, you know, top of mind for people, right? So, yeah, um, I, I think that's another plus point, right? That sounds like it. All right. Well, I guess maybe the most important thing is did you go to the Ice Cube concert? At, uh, did, did Ice Cube go? Wasn't he like... Uh, one of the, I know it was one of these. I couldn't. I had. We had so many meetings. So I got stuck one of those, but I couldn't get there. Oh, I think you should have canceled this. So if Ice Cube's playing, you got to go. You got to just be like, "Hey guys, I got to cut this meeting short." So <laughs> no, it seemed like a really good event. It'll be. It's going to be really. Uh, I'm fascinated by it 
to see because I, I guess I have a lot of like OpenStack kind of like you know history or experience or just kind of following it like and I don't know people have their own opinions about OpenStack but I almost feel like the weight of the OpenStack projects and the kind of the distrib I don't know the I would call it maybe the loss of focus right in some ways made that too big of uh, an initiative to like to keep growing and I th- I think Kubernetes are just let's just say the broad CNCF and the kind of everything underneath like the broad Kubernetes uh, umbrella it's it's sort of at this inflection point where it's incredible that all everyone's coming together and you can kind of see like the of like the platform to build platforms on which makes a lot of sense to me and like in the idea that you know it is kind of like decoupled and abstracted. Um, but there's this moment, right? Like if it goes too far, like if next year we go to this and there's like, um, th- like 300, uh, new sandbox, uh, projects, I'll be like, Whoa, I think maybe it's just, you know what I mean? It's like gone too far. So the governance is going to be like really tr- tricky here to keep it small enough that it's focused, but big enough that it does actually address everyone's requirements. Right. So it's going to, I don't know, it's going to be interesting to watch. And, and I don't, I don't know. I don't, for I for one don't know how it's going to play out, but I know everybody's focused in on it, right? It's going to be the new, new thing for the next year, at least. So, yeah. Um, all right. So Umer, where should people, if they want to get a hold of you personally, because they have, because you know, they, they want to network in New York or they, maybe they are trying to uh, figure out how they're going to, uh, securely connect all these different services. Where can they find you on the internets, as they say? <laughs> so they can definitely find me on LinkedIn, right? Umair Khan on LinkedIn um, and Twitter as well at Umair Mohit. Um, I'm sure I'm I'm pretty searchable, so you can search. Yeah, yeah. And we'll put LinkedIn all of this in the uh, the show notes. Yeah, and, absolutely. And LinkedIn like would be the best. And then, of course, uh, your company Skytail. It's it's Skytail.io. Is that right? Yes. Correct. And we have a Twitter follow us on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on we had a very good medium blog too that I posted my first blog on as well. Follow us on that too. That's right. Make um, sure but to if give, you go to follow him, give like uh Umer lots of uh, thumbs up. Is it thumbs up or plus? Yeah. I can't remember what it is on media. I think it's claps. Think claps. claps. Okay. We need a lot right, of give, right. give Umer lots of claps. Like, yeah. Uh, give him some love. Give my blog claps, right? So. <laughs> All right, we'll definitely do that. And then of course, uh, I'll also put a link into Spiffy, because Spiffy has its own website and I think it has its own Slack channel. So if you are, if you want to get yeah. hands on or you want to like be part of that community, then uh, uh, you should definitely check it out. So uh, Umer, with that, is there anything else? Anything else the people should know about you? You know, other than your love of workload management. Of work- <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you know how uh, initially Saitel was saying workload versus service, right? I said service is a better word. Workload has bad memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always think, you know, it's always interesting, as, as you were alluding to earlier, it's like, you know, if you're like in enterprise software in general, there's kind of these sub-disciplines like security and monitoring and workload management. But like when you actually start working in them, I, I think they're much more similar than they are different, right? Like sometimes people yeah. really believe it. It's like, but at the end of the day, like monitoring, right? It's about like, putting some agents out, usually collecting a lot of data, analyzing it, hopefully running some algorithms. And if you look at a lot of like, you know, security intrusion detection, it's the same idea. Put a lot of agents out, pull data back in, but then analyze it for some type of vulnerability. Same thing with authentication. So uh, sometimes, I don't know if that's good or bad. Like we, we shouldn't overcomplicate it sometimes is what I think though. It's, it's, uh, it's all about like trying to solve some type of business value. So if that's going to make you successful, right? It's the people that attach yourself to the business value that's most meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. So, yep. 
All right. Well, I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Software Defined Interviews. If this is the first time you've heard this podcast, well, where have you been? But more importantly, make sure to go to softwaredefinedinterviews.com, and there you can see all our previous episodes, and you can subscribe to this podcast. And if you want to hear our other podcasts where we talk about kind of a weekly roundup of news and events and cloud computing and enterprise software, go to softwaredefinedtalk.com. And Umer, did you know we are so generous that we'll send you a sticker? If you send us uh, your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, I can send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And you know what? When I get off, I don't think I've seen you in person, Umer, so I'm going to have to send you a bunch of stickers. Uh, <laughs> and, we, and we always appreciate uh, an iTunes review uh, if you have the time. And, you know, just like Umer wants claps, I want five-star ratings. That's all I need, five-star <laughs> ratings. It's yeah, we'll send you spiffy stickers to anyone who needs them. That's right. Absolutely. So, so with that, Umer, thanks for being on the show, and we will see everyone next time.